today, um, if you are in an age range where you might be considered a kindergartner through fifth grade, you can raise your hands and you can have a busy bag to keep you busy and occupied because today we invite all of our children's ministry team to stay in the service with us. Once a month we try to do that for their benefit. They give out so much and I am so grateful. Um, Just letting you know as a dad, not a pastor of this church, but as a dad I have been so blessed by the ministry of our children's ministries team. Uh, They invest so much in teaching and training our kids and giving them resources and they are very busy uh, putting together resources for us as parents And uh, my own kids come home and they have things that they've colored or things that they've done or handouts that they bring home and we talk about that and there are some scriptures that they are encouraged to memorize and it's a fascinating thing. So I'm just so grateful for our children's ministries team and uh, you can see Chrissy here is handing out those busy bags along with her kids uh, who are doing some service, acts of service today, which is great. Um, But... Once a month, we do like to stay together, and usually on, month, uh, on that day of the month when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we invite all the children's ministry team to stay in here and, and be receiving those elements together. You know what? I think I forgot to grab this. Today we pick up with Uh, part two of a sermon that I started last week. It's called, What's in a Name? And we began last week looking at uh, a new sermon series, which you can see titled is Defining Moments. We're looking at the life of Jesus through the second half of the Apostle Matthew's account, first century account of his life with Jesus, or his his life, uh, yeah, Matthew's life with Jesus. And so we'll be looking at the second half of the book of Matthew, Matthew 16, right on through the end. And we picked up last week with Matthew 16, starting with verse 13. And uh, when we met Jesus last week and his disciples, they were in a kind of a northern city in Israel called Caesarea Philippi. And they were in a meeting. And Jesus had gathered his disciples around him to have this meeting of the minds. And uh, we believe that Matthew is relaying this account for a couple of different reasons, but we don't know how covert or under the radar that is that the meeting was. Um, But we know that Jesus was asking his disciples to give him a report. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? And then when they started to give some answers to that, uh, he then goes on to say, but who do you say I am? And we talked last week about the implications of that in our own lives. Jesus is asking for both a personal declaration, in other words, I want you to declare who I am, but he's also asking for the public declaration. That is, who are you telling other people I am? What are you saying about me? And then, of course, we went on to see that Peter responds pretty excitedly, right? You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, cool, you're getting it, right? And and I see that you, you have gotten some revelation from God because there's no other way that you could recognize that. And so cool, and on you, Peter, I'm going to build the church. And so this, this magnificent like next step is kind of laid out. The future is foretold. Peter, the rock, I'm going to build the church upon you. 
And so it's this big kind of momentous moment. What we might call a transition moment. But then Jesus closes that little moment by saying, but, but hang on, don't, don't tell too many other people yet. All right? Why? And we talked about this last week because I'm not sure you still get it yet. Right? You say it. And I think you got it, but I don't think you got it all the way yet. And there's still some more things for me to do. And that term Messiah, that whole idea, that's kind of controversial in this area. So let's keep it a little bit under wraps. The time will come, and we're going to keep moving forward. Because this is the beginning now of the end of the story. And Matthew is relaying this to us to give us a sense that there's a hinge, there's a transition taking place in Jesus' life and in his earthly ministry. And from this point forward, we're now moving into what we might call the end game. Very quickly, after this momentous occasion, you're the Christ, you're the, the Son of God, the Messiah. And on this church, I'm, on, on you, I'm going to build my church. Very quickly, he then moves into a different tone. You might think it would be good to celebrate that moment for a minute, right? You recognize me. Cool. Let's celebrate. Let's throw a feast. Wouldn't that be fun, right? Celebrate the wins we talk about in leadership, right? That's a win. We can call that a win. Can we just say that's a win? Look to your name. That's a win. All right? They get it. They got part of it. We should celebrate that. But Jesus sees deeper than just the surface there. Let's read in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 now. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is the first of three different occasions where Jesus begins to lay out what comes next. You'll read about it here. You'll read about it if you were to read in chapter 17 of Matthew. And you'll also read about it in Matthew chapter 20. Jesus now wants to turn their attention to the full picture of what's about to come. It's not as if he hasn't been saying it all along, right? And it's not as if it's not in the Old Testament, some of the scriptures that they would have known but he's putting it in some pretty plain terms. This is what it's going to look like. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things at the hands of those who lead you, of those who teach you, of those who say they understand what these Scriptures are all about. I'm going to suffer at their hands, and then I'm going to be killed. But it's not the end. Not only will I be killed, but I will rise again on the third day. It's as if Jesus knows who he is called to be, right? I believe that the Holy Spirit has revealed to Jesus just exactly who he's supposed to be. We read about it earlier in the service in Isaiah chapter 53. The prophets had foretold this suffering servant. The prophets had foretold what this might look like. And though they at the time didn't really understand what that might have meant, we now know, right, as we look back, but I believe Jesus also knew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
And the reality is that Jesus wanted his disciples. And by extension, you and I, right? This is a story about the disciples, but by extension, you and I, he wants us to know who he really is. He wants us to understand the full picture of what we're up against. And in order to get there, sometimes we have to give up what we think we know. And therein lies our challenge. Because we are often raised to think certain things about who God is. We're often raised to believe certain things about the Bible or about the church or about how we're supposed to interact with the culture, whatever. We are often raised more by our culture than we are by who Jesus really is. That was very true of the disciples of his day. They had a certain mindset, a certain understanding of what it meant to be a disciple, of what it meant for Jesus to come and be the Messiah. They thought they knew. And so when they declared it, they got it half right. Because they sort of got it. But they didn't understand what Jesus really was coming to be about. In fact, one of the major plot lines for the entire Jewish story was being challenged by verse 21. Messiah was supposed to come and overthrow the Roman Empire. Messiah was supposed to come and reestablish the kingdom, the monarchy. Messiah was supposed to reestablish Israel as the prominent nation, the light for the world. And Jesus said, that's not what it's going to look like. At least not at the start. And at least not right up until I'm risen from the dead, right? At least not until you see the whole picture come out. But what you think, sometimes you have to let go of. Jesus' announcement that he's going to go to Jerusalem, doesn't it seem kind of jolting? Peter has just declared this magnificent thing and Jesus has declared on, on you I'm going to build this church and, and Jesus, it's just it's jolting. But wait a minute. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be killed? Like It offends our sensibilities, I think, a little bit. You can imagine Peter. Peter's just had this new found revelation about himself and about his life and I'm the rock and I'm the church and I'm like, what does that mean, Jesus? Let's talk about that. Let's unpack that a little bit, right? Come on, let's help me understand. What does this really look like, Jesus? And Jesus doesn't stay there. Jesus doesn't linger on that moment. And Peter's like, whoa, hang on a minute. You ever been in a conversation where you hear one thing and that one thing doesn't allow you to hear anything else that comes after it. You ever been there? Oftentimes, it happens in like bad news situations, right? You hear that bad news and rather than like listening to the whole story and maybe even how it might be resolving itself, all you're stuck on is like, wait, what happened? Wait, 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 stop. Let's talk about that because what? You ever been there? Some of you. Some of you have been there. I think it's a little bit like when my kids talk to me, for instance. And they tell me, they let me know, like, they're about to let me know something is broken. Or they 
did something around the house, right? Something's broken, and my mind, because I'm, the, I'm a fixer, I'm like, oh, brother, what do I got to do to fix that? And I don't even hear the fact that they've gone on or they're about to tell me that we took care of it, it's fixed, we're good, I just wanted you to know. All I heard was something's broken. What's up, right? I think if you can put yourself in that situation, that's a little bit like what's happening to Peter in this moment. He heard that he's going to be a rock on which the church is built. He's declared that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus goes on to tell him, it's not going to look like what you thought it was, but Peter's like, whoa, hang on a minute. What does he say? It says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter, that's pretty bold. Going to rebuke Jesus, huh? Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. I love Peter. We all love Peter, right? We love his boldness. And we love his confidence. And in that moment, we totally, I think I can totally get Peter. Right? Because I'm like, Okay, you just said I'm going to be the church. I'm going to be the foundation. I'm the rock. Like, I got your back, Jesus. We're good. All right? You, you can trust me. All that stuff you said, that's all right. We'll, we'll get through it. I got your back. And I'm going to rally these other guys, and we're going, to, we're going to be with you. I sort of get that sense that that's where Peter's mind is at. Like, uh-uh, it's not going to be like that. Don't worry. It's a, it's a tender kind of like, inspirational moment we might think about, but then, not for Jesus. So I don't want to, like, build Peter up here because Jesus didn't build him up, did he? What does Jesus say? Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter goes from this climactic high moment to what had to be one of his lowest up until the end game when he actually denied Jesus. You go from this intense high into this intense low moment because he just can't wrap his head around what Jesus is saying. He wants it to be a certain way. And to say that it's going to be something different offends him. And in some ways, it should offend all of us, right? Why would this good person who is here, who we believe to be the Son of God, why would he ever have to suffer and die? It should offend us all a little bit. Of course, it's hard for us to put ourselves in that situation because we sort of like, we see the end game. We see why it was all necessary and they understand a little bit about the purpose of salvation and that sort of thing. But to think that he would have to do it through suffering and death, it's offensive. And he can't wrap his head around it. And not only that, he doesn't want it to be that way. It's a little bit, I think, like some of us wrestle with some of the things we deal with in our certain in our context in today. We want things to be a certain way, but Scripture 
doesn't quite line up with that or it tells us a different story and we wrestle with these things because we want it to be a certain way and it's not. And But how can that be, God? And I don't understand you. And why would you do it that way? Because it doesn't make sense to me. And we wrestle. We wrestle with Scripture. God's not offended by that, right? God, God can handle your questions. God can take the, the depth of your pain and your circumstance and He can process it with you. He's not offended by tough questions. But what is He asking of Peter in this moment? He doesn't see Peter. He sees the enemy. The enemy that is at work all around us. The enemy that is influencing us to think certain things, to believe certain things, to be swayed by certain things that are around us, that are contrary to His will, contrary to His Scripture. He doesn't see Peter in that moment. He sees the enemy. He loves Peter. But he hates the enemy. And I know, we could wrestle on the word hate, right? Does Jesus ever hate? I don't know. But you get the idea. He knows that Satan will do everything he can to stop him from his mission. And he's not going to let that happen. One thing that we can take away from this particular exchange is this. That our spiritual growth as Christians is gradual and not instantaneous. It would be nice with Peter's declaration to say, I've arrived. And in our culture and in our church, sometimes we get to that. Like, if you'll say the sinner's prayer, you have arrived. And we know that's not the case. We know that there's going to be many hurdles that we've got to cross. There, we know that there's things that we've got to root out of us. Thought patterns and habits and ways of living and other sorts of things. We've got to continue. It's called a journey into salvation. The church might call it sanctification. The process of being made more and more like Christ is evidenced right here in Peter. He gets it, sort of, but he doesn't get it all the way. And Jesus calls him out on it right at that moment. In the span of just a few verses, Jesus lays out the foundation for the church and a whole new pattern. And for everyone who follows it, it is a pattern that can be expected. Trials and struggles, laying down our goals and our dreams for the sake of Him and His persecution. Because Jesus is a suffering servant. That's what it means to be a disciple. He invites us to be one with Him. If you thought of becoming a Christian was going to be kind of like easy. If you thought that becoming a Christian, everybody would treat you well. If you thought that becoming a Christian, that everybody would be open to what you have to say. That by learning the Bible, you would be some kind of an authority and you'd be able to change people's hearts and change people's lives. It's just not the case, right? It's just not the case. Everyone in our world wants to believe in something. 
And so often they want to believe in what they think. Actually believing in something that has truth as its foundation. And it's objective in that sense, right? It's hard to wrap our heads around that. It's hard to surrender to that. And even Christians can't even agree all the time on what that looks like. And so it's hard becoming a disciple of Christ and living into Christ and surrendering ourselves and coming under submission to Christ. is a, That's a tough journey. The life of a disciple is difficult. And that's why very few people actually stick with it. Jesus talking to his disciples in John 6 even says as much. And we'll read about that in just a few minutes. Because he asked them to participate in his life. They asked him to partic- he asked them to participate in his death. And he was giving this idea of the body and the blood and the sacrifice that was being made. And, and he said, you know what, if you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you, you can't have life. And he said, this is a hard concept. And his disciples looked back at him and said, this is a hard thing. Who can do it? And Jesus said, not very many, but it's your choice. Not very many, but that's your choice. See, Jesus had a cosmic, bigger plan in mind. He stands outside of time. Earth is his creation. We are his creation. He stands outside of all of it, and he knows the beginning from the end. And he knows where he's trying to get us to. And he knows the steps that we'd rather take versus the ones that he asks us to take. And so knowing the beginning from the end, he encourages us to do it his way. And we have to fight the passions inside of us that say we should do it this way. And it should look like this. He says, no, it should look like this. And I'm going to model it for you. We can all get there. We can all choose to follow his plan. Let's go on and just read in. These verses, it says this, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels. And then He will reward each person according to what they have done. What does denial look like in your life? What does that look like in your life? It's not the first time Jesus has talked about, at least in Matthew's account, this idea of taking up your cross and following Him. When He sent out His disciples to go and kind of practice a little bit, right? Go out and and live this life for a little bit and then come back and report to me what happened. He sent them out. We can go back to Matthew chapter 10 and read this. I'll just read it for you here. Matthew 10, starting in verse 32. 
says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. But I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. This is Jesus talking. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for me will find it. Denial is a big issue. Denying ourselves. Living the life of a disciple. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Is a huge commitment. It's something that Jesus invites us all to participate in. But it starts with reshaping how we think. Paul would write it in Romans chapter 12. He says, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Not conforming anymore to the pattern of the world around us. It starts right here, right? And and there's changes that happen all throughout who we are. Do you know what happens sometimes in our world? You know what happens is, and especially in our churches, sometimes we make denial into something that it doesn't need to be. So for instance, let me just talk, and, and this might be a little bit new for some of you, but sometimes we talk about denying our desires. Anybody ever heard something along those, those lines? How many of you know that desire is not inherently bad or good? Desire is something that flows from within us. You can desire something good in the same way you can desire something bad. The object of your desire is often what is wrong. But the desire itself is in you. And so often we try to put down our desires, denying our flesh, all that sort of stuff. And in the process, we deny a little bit about what our bodies and our minds are trying to tell us. You know, God was human through Jesus. Jesus had feelings. Jesus had emotions. Jesus was real. Jesus experienced some temptation, but he never sinned. It wasn't his desires. It wasn't the things that were flowing in. It's that he directed them in the right way. He had control over them. He managed them in a proper way. But he paid attention to them. And so I want you to understand that when it says deny yourselves, it's more talking about the object, the, the thing that you think you need so badly, the thing that you feel drawn to most, that's what we are to reevaluate in light of who Christ is. Deny yourself. Deny what you think you need. Deny what you think you know. You're not to deny your personality or your personhood. God made you special. He loves you. He cares about you. He made you unique. He made you in His image. We are to live out that image for His good and for His glory. So when it says deny yourselves, don't deny how you were made. Don't deny that you're made in the image of God. 
loves you. Don't deny your gifts and your talents. Don't deny the things that you do well. He put those in you to serve Him, to bring Him glory and to bring Him honor. So let's not misread when it says deny yourselves. It's, it's not that we cease to be who we are. God celebrates who we are. We are people made in His image. We are people that He died for. He loves us. So what do we deny? We deny sometimes our patterns of thinking, right? We deny sometimes the habits that lead us down paths that aren't really good. We deny sometimes those cultural expectations that we've grown so comfortable with. Sometimes we deny our training. Sometimes we deny our familial approaches to life. We've all been raised in the context of a family, most of us. Sometimes the way families do things, we have to look at that, right? And if we respect our father and mother more than we respect Jesus, something's wrong. He doesn't say don't love your father and mother, does he? We know that, right? But sometimes we so defer to what our parents expect. And we fail to do the very thing that God might be calling us to do that breaks out of that. What is Jesus looking inside your heart today and saying about denial? What do you need to start reframing, refocusing? For Peter, it was an expectation about what was to come. Peter, don't live into that anymore. We've got to start reframing this whole thing. We've got to start remaking it, reshaping it, because after I go through what I go through, you're it. Just in the same way, you and I pick up on that legacy after all these years. You and I, as His disciples, we're it. We're His method. We're His choice. This church, the church of Jesus Christ at large, like that's His choice for how to get this message out and to bring other people to a saving knowledge of Him. Jesus is clarifying questions to His disciples that day and to us today are something for us to ponder. And what does it benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is anything more important than your soul? Your career, your job, your material wealth, your possessions, your music, your iPod, anything. Is anything more important than your soul, your friendships, being liked by others, having that ultimate relationship with somebody? Is that more important than your soul? If you gain that, have you gained anything in relation to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Today we stand in the middle of a melting pot of a culture in our country. I think that religion is being turned into something that is self-made and comfortable based upon what I think is right. Echoes of what Paul wrote to Timothy over 2,000 years ago. People are going to just do whatever their itching ears want to do. They're going to believe whatever their itching ears want to believe. 
Scripture is often interpreted to, to fit what we want it to say. Politically, we're as divided as we have ever been. And even some Christians are choosing to believe that political solutions to our social ills are both possible and maybe even our best opportunity. I've been doing a lot of reading of the early church. And as I wrote that, it reminded me of what I've been reading about Constantine, an emperor in the 4th century in Rome. The early church had been persecuted for centuries. Persecuted because they wouldn't bow down to the emperor and to the multiplicity of gods that Rome worshipped. Christians said, no, there is one God, one true God, and He came to us through Jesus Christ, and they stood on that. And when asked to deny that, they wouldn't deny it, and they were executed for it. And they became martyrs. And they persecution spread throughout the church. Until the 4th century, when Constantine came along, and he recognized that the Christian God was actually powerful. And amongst all the other gods, Constantine said wow, there might be something to this Christian God. And so he allowed the worship of God and he himself became sympathetic to the Christian God. Notice I said sympathetic. Because there's really no historical evidence that he ever surrendered himself to the bishops of the day or the preachers of the day, the pastors of the day. He remained in authority over the church, but he allowed the church to to worship their God. But he also allowed the Romans to worship their gods. And he didn't want to ruffle feathers. Politically, it was important to him to keep his empire together. And historians differ on whether or not he ever really did give his life to Christ. Some people believe it was like a deathbed kind of conversion. But during his life, all we know is that persecution ended for the Christians. But the worship of other gods and continued. But the church was allowed to grow and was allowed to flourish in a new way. The problem is it started to look like something that it had never looked like before because it began to mix with the state and it began to mix with the culture all around it. And compromises were made and new forms of worshiping came into place and new cathedrals were built and ways that you could access God became and they just and they started to grow and in Christianity this authentic Jesus who brought in a new kingdom ushered in a new kingdom that wasn't about a political solution it began to intermingle with all of that and all of a sudden over the centuries Christianity ceased to look like what it had started out to be And if that doesn't remind you a lot of our culture today, I don't know what else I can say. Jesus stood for something different. It was a new kingdom. We'll read in the coming weeks as we continue this series uh, the upside-down nature of that kingdom in which He was the Messiah of the suffering and death variety. He didn't overthrow earthly empires. He was just radically different. And sadly, he was threatening. 
to the existing empires because of it. Only by God's grace and our willing pursuit of knowing him for who he is will we ever be able to truly love and live like Christ. So the question again comes back to, where is my allegiance going to be? Will I lay down my life? Will I lay down my ways of thinking and my own pursuits? I was listening recently to a podcast with a pastor out in California. His name is John Ortberg. He's written several books and he walked closely with Dallas Willard and became a student of Dallas Willard. And He was talking about the pursuit of becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. And they were talking about this idea that in our culture and in our churches today, we often make this idea of salvation a little too easy. And we talk about disciple in too simple of terms. Because this is where it really gets difficult. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following Jesus. It means laying down a lot of what we think we know. And John Ortberg says this, he says, Your pursuit of Christ will become self-validating. As you let go of what you think you know and you pursue Him for who He is, He will make Himself known to you and other things will be made known to you as well. Scripture will come alive in a new kind of way when we see it through that lens. And that's where we want to linger today as we enter into a time of communion. I will close with just a look at this verse. Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. It's an interesting way to end that particular section. And scholars are all over the map on what it really refers to. Does it refer to what comes next in Matthew's account? That is the transfiguration where Jesus is up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John and they're they're seeing Jesus and Moses and Elijah together like some people believe that's what he was referring to. Some of you will not taste death before you see that. But other scholars and probably the ones that I kind of align a little bit more with say that this is a reference to his ultimate death and resurrection. And some of them would have seen, many of them would have seen what it was like when the kingdom represented itself through his death and ultimate resurrection. And still others, to be fair, say that this hasn't even yet happened yet. Some are referring to the end times. But for my money right now, I believe that this is pointing us to Easter and to the cross. And that's the pursuit that we're on over the next several weeks. Some of you may not realize that on, on Wednesday of this week, we kick off a season in the church calendar known as Lent. It is uh, kicked off traditionally with something called Ash Wednesday, a, a service where you go and, and you commit to the next 40 days, roughly, of deeper introspection, of looking deeper inside of ourselves, of maybe denying ourselves something in the spirit of of the Lenten traditions, of maybe helping others as a form of sacrifice and giving, of being more intentional with prayer and fasting. But it is a season of preparation as it leads up to the season of Easter and ultimately the Resurrection Sunday. So there's no better time, I guess, that's my point, 
If you are interested in taking a deeper look inside yourself and asking the Holy Spirit to help you understand what is it about me that I need to give to you? What is it about me that gets in the way of worshiping you, of knowing you, of loving you? What is it, Lord Jesus? I'm going to deny myself something. And, and don't just make it about food. Don't just make it about the easy stuff. And It's more a posture of our heart. And it could be something very physical, very tangible. It could also be something quite spiritual, emotional. It could be something. The idea is to commit in this season to digging a little deeper on what it means to deny myself, to take up my cross, and to follow you. And this season will take us right into Easter. If you're interested in participating in a service, our sister church community, the Savior, has an Ash Wednesday service. Uh, I've told our leaders here they do it so well, I don't feel the need to repeat it here. Um, I encourage you to go there, 7 o'clock on Wednesday night, if you're interested in kicking off the season of Lent with an Ash Wednesday service. And then the following week on Wednesday, we will gather here uh, for one of three different times of Lenten reflection with communion and prayer. And so those will be uh, three different times throughout the season of Lent, 6.30. Our first one will be on March 13th. So we'd like to walk through that journey with you. And we are going to prepare now to receive the elements of communion. As the worship team comes up, and they're going to play just a song to reflect on, I'd like to read for you what I referenced earlier. This uh, author's name is Jean Vanier, and uh, the book is titled Jesus, the Gift of Love. The entire account is his perspective on what it means that Jesus became human. But I'm just going to read for you one section where he talks about what I referenced in John chapter 6. He says this, Having escaped from their sight and traveled across the lake, he began to announce the secret of his heart. This is Jesus. In all truth, I tell you, if you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Anyone who does not eat my flesh and drink my blood has eternal life. Anyone who does has eternal life. And I shall raise that person up on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me. And I live in that person. I was quoting Jesus. He goes on to say this. Jesus did not come to be a political leader but a gentle lover of people, empowering them to love as he loves. He came to reveal the intimacy he lives with the Father and to call us to enter into that intimacy by entering into intimacy with him. This intimacy is given and signified as each one eats his flesh and drinks his blood. Let's reflect on that as the worship team plays in response.